And now it's my pleasure to introduce our 2021 Holtzgang Scholar, Dr. Neka Sederstrom. Neka Sederstrom serves in the role of Chief Health Equity Officer at Hennepin Healthcare System in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where she leads efforts in addressing health disparities, equity, and anti-racism. A DEI expert and thought leader in clinical ethics, she earned a PhD in sociology from Howard University with concentrations in medical sociology and race, gender, and class inequalities. She is also graduate trained in global health management and philosophy from George Washington University and Howard University, respectively. Before becoming a Chief Health Equity Officer, she served Minnesota Children's and MedStar Health as a clinical ethicist. Dr. Cedarstrom is a member of several professional societies and holds leadership positions in CHEST and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is a fellow of the American College of CHEST Physicians and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. She is widely published in the areas of equity, clinical ethics, and intensive care and speaks regularly at national and international meetings. I must add that she is as also an incredible role model for her colleagues in the field and is as wise as she is genuine. Will you please help me in welcome Dr. Neka Sederstrom. Thank you so much for that warm welcome, Kevin, and, and thank you for allowing me to join you all this morning. Um, I'm hopeful that all technology goes the way it's supposed to, uh, but you know, this is the age that we live in, so if something goes amiss, we'll just keep it rolling. One of the things that I pride myself on is just being really relaxed and flexible in our new state of being. Um, so with that, we'll get started. I have nothing to disclose, but one of the things that I've started doing these days is um, when I'm giving talks, especially about racism, I disclose really clearly that I am a descendant of slaves in America and I'm the mother of children who are also considered black in America. And I think that that is very important to understand because it helps to frame the lens in which I speak. Uh, and so I wanna make sure that we are aware that that is how I self-identify and how I um, will be speaking as we move forward. But other than that, I have no other disclosures. So we begin this journey of understanding uh, first our history, and we, we can't really move forward in knowing where we have to go until we understand where we come from. And before we start this journey, let me just make it really clear that I am not able to see the chat. So I have given Kevin and the team the permission to interrupt me at any time if there's a question or somebody wants me to address something that was not clear in the conversation. Don't feel bad about it. I love having interactive conversations. And so sitting here just lecturing is not necessarily necessarily my happy space. My happy space is when someone says, but wait, so please feel free to do that. So as we go on this journey, we have to pay attention um, to the things that make us feel comfortable, the things that make us feel uncomfortable, stuff that we didn't know about, uh, areas that we need to do our own personal history, uh, research and such. And I want you to kind of hold on to those things because they're very important for you to, to pay attention to and to sit in. Um, I also make statements before starting on these kinds of conversations to my white colleagues on the call that a lot of this may be uncomfortable to hear, and I just ask you to please sit in the discomfort, um, recognize where it's coming from, recognize the feeling uh, and try and name it for yourself. And then as you go through your own personal journey with this, take a little bit of time to try and work through why things were unsettling or what your feelings were when you were hearing some of these concepts. 
in the podcast 1619, if you've not listened to it, I highly uh, I recommend it for you to listen to. The author starts off with a very, very powerful statement. Uh, she states that no one knows when it was that the realization set in that there would be no more opportunities to hug a grandparent, to dance with a cousin at a celebration, or to kiss a child. Did it take one week, two, or three on the open waters of the Atlantic to irrevocably break the ties of a people, a culture, a sense of safety and security, and that security that comes with being home? Some on this journey decided this break was not acceptable and chose to jump overboard to take one final swim with their ancestors. Others chose to die from hunger strikes, deciding that death is a more favorable outcome than to take their chances on what lied at the end of these waters. This view that you're seeing right here is the end of those waters. This is a view of the Atlantic Ocean standing on the shores of a Caribbean island. Many of you have probably enjoyed this view when you've gone to visit some of the Caribbean islands or even on the coast of the United States. This view is the last view that those who survived saw. And this view that in many of us brings enjoyment was also a sense of fear and isolation that happened to the millions of captured Africans when they arrived at their final de destination. So we all know the story. Africans were some stolen, some captured, some sold, and some freely given based on lies that were told of potential better opportunities were encapsulated in the hulls of ships that were deemed slave ships, and they were brought to the colonies in the Americas to be sold into what we have termed chattel slavery. This picture um, that you're seeing of how people were packed end to end uh, is an example of how these ships were looked on the inside. And then, of course, the shackles that were used to uh, maintain slaves in these in these holdings is on the left. The first of these ships was the White Lion. Uh, the White Lion arrived on the shores of uh, Point Comfort, which is in the, around the Carolinas. And it had 20 to 30 Africans that were enslaved. It was a pirate ship and they didn't have any other goods and services to use for trading, but they had these 20 to 30 Africans and they used the people to trade for goods and services. That slave trading was the first known to be written down and that was in 1619, which is where the 1619 project comes from. Uh, and is seen as the birth of slavery in the colonies that eventually became the United States of America. What we didn't have to realize is that there were a group of people who were made to be black. Black was not something that was the terminology that either one of the groups of individuals that were brought to this country were used. It wasn't even the terminology that many um, in Europe used. It eventually became a terminology to delineate between white and black. So people were made to be black uh, and that that was a decision by those who were made to be white and who decided that they were white. And in this new place, black meant slave. Those who were strong enough to make it through the Middle Passage had to now forge a new sense of personhood, one that included an understanding of that, that their bodies, their minds, their spirituality, their spirits were no longer theirs to control or to um, promote. They now belonged to others, and in belonging to others, it was only because of their skin color. And that belonging meant that the skin color that was now considered white apparently was given rights and authorities to claim ownership over those who had skin color that was claimed to be black. 
So a new link had to be forged for the sake of survival, and that link was within each other, and it had to be welded together by this lived trauma of enslavement. We have to remember that these people that were brought were not all from the same place. They spoke different languages. They had different backgrounds uh, with cultural identities. They had different food practices. They were just different people, but they were seen as one simply because of the uh, identifier of a skin color and now being forced to be considered one. They had to create a new sense of identity merged with each other that included a need for all the very human things that we do for survival, connection, language, community, family. Those things now had to be forged anew. So when we think a lot about how people identify in this country as Black American or African American or Asian American, Pacific Islander American, Native or American Indian, it's very interesting to think through why some people have to have the delineation of what kind of American, whereas white American can just say American. When the reality is that it's in white America that has the most um, connection to a, an old world. We have, we don't really say European Americans, but we have many people who love their Irish heritage, or they'll say that I'm Irish American, Italian American, uh, I'm Scandinavian American, German American. This connection to Europe is seen as a positive, but yet in America, they call themselves just American and then they celebrate their European connection. When the reality is that as immigrants to this country, when they came and forged a new beginning, there were already people, the indigenous Americans, who were truly American. And they then proceeded to engage in chattel slavery trade, which brought in Africans into the Americas and had to create an entirely new cultural and sense of identity. So they have to only be uniquely American because there is no tie to another country or another cultural tradition in Africa. So this need to have a human connection and create a new sense of culture and identity that Africans severed from their previous connection to Africa, now in the Americas, makes them very much American. And But we have this need to somehow delineate that they are African-American or Black American. Uh, and I think that we need to start thinking through what that means because there was a survival that was necessary. For hundreds of years, Black people in this country lived under the continual power of dehumanizing. Beaten, they were traded like animals, they were tortured and enslaved, and there was no reprieve for this. There was no safe haven, there was no place that they could go, there was no connection to anything other than the land that they were on. Um, and then understanding that when you were born with a certain complexion or hue, you were no longer considered human. We know that our laws were created to maintain and sustain this, um, we have the evidence of all the various acts within Congress that were set up, the Virginia Slave Codes, uh, and all the other ways that it, slavery was codified in the American system uh, to create this continuous dehumanization. And so when we consider how the next steps as history moved, we need to pay attention to after the hundreds of years, it took the Civil War happening and emancipation before slavery was actually decided to be uh, illegal. It wasn't said to be immoral by those who decided it was illegal. It was just addressed to be illegal. And um, many have heard of the famous quotes of Abraham Lincoln, who said that if he could have ended the Civil War without ending slavery, he would have done that because slavery 
was something that he didn't morally oppose to. It was just necessary in order to address the capital, the the capitalism that came with slavery and the and the wealth that came to the South, um, in order to squash the Civil War. And as we all know that even though emancipation occurred, it took another two years on June 19th, two years after emancipation in 1867, before uh, the last slaves were finally freed. And it it took to June 19th, 2021, before that actual celebration was now considered an official holiday. So as you can see, as the history goes through, uh, there's still opportunities where we've not done as a society a good job of addressing our uh, appreciation to a movement from an enslaved structure to a free structure. These other issues that occurred, right, as since emancipation, the 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 hope of black people to have a better lived experience of no longer being considered slaves was not real because when we moved into the era of reconstruction and Jim Crow and then what has been called the five decades of terror or the great nadir and again uh, the great nadir is seen as also a sort of a second slave rate we're now into other terminologies like mass incarceration and things like that that I, I urge you all to look into and uh, do your own personal research on how those all shape um, the black experience that we have till this day. So let's move into how this history relates to medicine because I think it's really important that we focus on the history of a people and then how medicine in our country was established for these people because that has 100% bearing on how things are still to the day. We need to start off with a clear definition of trust. And according to the dictionary, trust is a firm belief in the ability sorry, the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. We know that trust is the basis for the physician-patient relationship. We know that having a strong sense of trust in not only your physician, but in your systems or to surround your physician, in the public health system, in your community to be able to offer you support, all of those are necessary for health and well-being. So if we look at the relationship of trust to Black people and, and, and the medical establishment in America, it is one that's fraught with a lot of concern. And one of the things I'm not going to do is uh, discuss the Tuskegee incident because oftentimes people assume that Tuskegee is the, the thing that caused the distrust, but that's not the case. And that's way far down the line in the history of, of the Black experience with medicine in America. Um, and so it's just kind of one of those add-ons. But what I will discuss is some of the things that were truly impactful that happened as soon as emancipation occurred. So once Black people were notified of their freedom, they were completely cut loose and without any sort of help or food or assistance in this transition. So there was no homes. They were not given the right to have property. There was no safe place available for people to gather. So what they did was they ended up in abandoned buildings throughout the South. And as we know that when you put people without the proper hygiene or opportunity for hygiene in congregate living spaces like abandoned buildings and close living quarters, it is a perfect opportunity for a public health crisis. And that's what happened. There was a huge smallpox outbreak. As a result of that, the Freedmen's Bureau um, Medical Division was created, and this was the first federally developed medical intervention to address the problem of what to do with the newly freed slaves um, and these freed persons who are now sick in these congregate living spaces. And it was actually set up because the smallpox breakout 
was starting to trickle into the white communities and that's where the outcry was happening. So hospitals for the newly emancipated were created, but they were severely under-resourced. They weren't given enough beds and linens, sheets, medicines, no quarantine opportunity. So that didn't really stop spread the way that uh, we would hope if there was an actual legitimate attempt to address a, a health public health crisis. The conditions were extremely poor. You had increased in mortality in the populations. There was a significant lack of physicians who were allocated to these very few hospitals. Um, only 100 doctors were deployed to cover the tens of thousands of freed persons within the United States. And then because of this lack of resources there and the increase in mortality rates, there was this belief that Black people were significantly um, incapable of living healthy, appropriate lives. Instead of addressing the issue of resource allocation, this new theory of extinction emerged. And in this theory, it basically said that there was a, a biological difference between Blacks and whites. And then there was this belief that freedom in of itself was a terminal condition because the mortality rates were higher for freed persons than they assumed they were in enslaved persons. Um, and this, condi this terminal condition of freedom was actually uh, used at the highest extent of our, uh, of our government. Um, there was this belief that if we invested in the hospital poor conditions and created opportunities for wellness through the, the healthcare system, that that would just be wasteful and foolish. There was the rise of the eugenics movement as well, um, that tried to uh, justify the biological difference and also say that there are just some traits that are more favorable than other traits and traits that are associated with black people were unfavorable. And so that kind of continued this scientific justification for why slavery should, uh, should be enacted again. The government officials tried to use this theory of extinction to defund the Freedmen's hospitals and they were successful. The only hospital that remained out of this was Howard University Hospital um, that many of you may know of. Um, and uh, when you think about the level of uh, government intervention that had to take place, I mean, at the highest office, President Andrew Johnson at the time was vehemently opposed to funding the Freedmen's hospitals and vetoed both bills that tried to support the um, the resource allocation to the Freedmen's bureaus in order to improve the hospital and medicine conditions for the freed slaves. And as you can see in this um, propaganda that was sent out, it, it's very clear that um, if you want to support the Negro, then you would support Congress. But if you want to uh, but if you do that, that's at the expense of the white man. So, and the president, who is for the white man, vetoed Congress twice. So, supporting Congress means you support the Negro. Sustaining the president means you protect the white man. And that was a a political push to try and get Andrew Johnson uh, reelected as well. So, in essence, black people were told that they had to care for themselves. So, this was the beginning of the, the government and institutions across the country um, pretty much claiming and being really loud and stating to Black people that you have to figure this out for yourselves because we, the institution, white people who were running the institutions and the government do not care enough uh, about your health and well-being in order to provide you the necessary um, resources and tools to make this something of priority for us. So figure this out for yourself. 
And in the event that you have to go to a, a hospital, since now the other hospitals were closed, there was massive amounts of segregation even within these hospital systems. And so what we have to pay attention to is how Blacks were also treated when they ended up in what were tantamount to just white-only hospitals. Many of them were denied admission. Um, with they were admitted to the white hospitals and they were placed in the basements and these basements were dark and dirty and dingy and did not have appropriate resources. White nurses were especially not allowed to care for black patients and as you can imagine there were no black nurses available in white hospitals um, and there was a huge bar uh, barrier for white women nurses to be allowed to be anywhere near a black man. So if there was a black man needing care at a white hospital, uh, and there was no space to keep them really far apart than that black man was not allowed to come into the hospital. The requirement that blacks could only be treated by black facilities was um, the beginning of the black physician movement. Um, and that again is really difficult to do in the early 20s and 30s when um, there were not many hospitals um, that were had medical schools associated with them that allowed black people to enroll in them and white physicians engage very rarely in addressing the needs of black patients. So if we look at this situation about black people at this point in our history and reflect on our definition of trust again. I just want to reiterate that trust requires this firm belief, a firm belief in reliability, truth, ability, and strength. But where we are right now is an environment where hospitals that are supposed to be reliable to care for people refused to care for black people and the ones that were delegated to black people were under resources and under resourced and neglected government officials also including the president of the united states at the time were making arguments that enslavement was a better condition than freedom uh, and there were enough physicians and resources uh, to, there were not enough physicians and resources, sorry, that's what I was say, to address the care for the newly freed black people. And that was also not done. And then the people who were strong enough to fight for their rights were around, but they were few and far between. And one of those was Rebecca Lee Cromford. She was the first black woman to graduate from the New England Female Medical School and started a movement uh, to educate Black women in particular to care for themselves and their families. And she did that through writing this book that was called A Book on Medical Discourse in Two Parts. And this was the beginning of Black people trying to sort of take back power within medicine to be able to help Black people ha live and get good care and to do that in a way that they could trust only their own. So Black clinicians started to gradually come into the Black community and Dr. Crumper being one of the strongest advocates for health and well-being, she worked in some of the Freedmen's Bureau uh, hospitals before they closed down, was uh, central to that movement in helping Black women understand how to care for the, their community in particular. We also know that to this day, the data show that clinician racial concordance is the highest impact for patient outcome and decreasing disparity in Black patients. So this, this partnership that started back in Dr. Crumper's time of Black clinicians taking care of Black patients and creating a sense of trust and a sense of caregiving is passed on through all the generations up till today. And we can still see it in our research that Black people do better with Black clinicians. So this is something that we have to think through and talk about 
because we can't have a situation where it's only black people being cared for by black clinicians, but we have to figure out the sort of the underpinnings of how all of this became our reality and then kind of tease that uh, to become to create a, a better um, opportunity for our black and brown patients going forward. So the coming decades led to more medical schools being opened, more hospitals being cared for, uh, opening to the opportunity of caring for black people. But this was also not without fights. So this article from JAMA talks about the American Medical Association uh, as a very powerful entity that worked really, really, really hard. At the time, it was an all-white entity for white physicians, but it spent lots of time and money advocating to maintain a separate but not equal uh, laws to keep Black people out of medicine. And so not only did you have government officials, but you also had professional societies. And during this time frame, there were many Black physicians who were barred from allowing uh, from admission into the AMA at the time. As we know, the AMA has since apologized for its racist history and has done a lot of work now to reverse that. But during this, this uh, racial divide um, era of the AMA joining forces with many government agencies to keep these separate but not equal laws, it, it created another sense that the organizations that are also supposed to be promoting health and well-being don't do so for black and, and uh, black people in particular. So what finally changed that got us to beginning some some traction in allowing black people into healthcare systems? That finally happened with the creation of Medicare. So it was widely supported in 1965. It was widely supported by black physicians and the white allies who helped to try and push this forward. And the reason was is it because it forced a compliance for age. And it also happened after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that said it was illegal to discriminate based on race. So the ability to create this sort of financial carrot and stick opportunity for hospitals to desegregate uh, specifically on age was a very lucrative one. Money was given to the care of elderly people regardless of race. So that was a significant income to the hospitals at the time. And what that meant was that they were able to bill for providing care to all above 65. So with that as an opportunity, there were about 3,000 hospitals that desegregated within four months to allow for Black patients to now be in their doors. Now, what we also need to pay attention to is the fact that just because they desegregated, that was for monetary reasons, not because they now culturally believe that Black patients should get equal care as white patients, not because within the hospital systems, the hospital administrators, the physicians, the nurses, believe that they should as white people care for black people at the same level that wasn't the rationale it was financially motivated and therefore um, many people have said that that was sort of the beginning of creating this a massive sense of the health disparity gap between white outcomes and black outcomes because the healthcare system didn't change in order to improve the health and well-being it changed in order to be financially sustainable I highly, highly, highly encourage you to read this book. There are so many examples of histories of atrocities between uh, Black Americans uh, and uh, the medical system. And if you haven't read Medical Apartheid by Dr. Harriet Washington, I strongly encourage you to do so because she does an excellent job of making the, the argument of why trust has not been something 
that we have ever seen happen within the black community and the medical community. And it's not just the Tuskegee experiment. It's actually a long dark history of medical experimentation and others and other elements that um, have led to where we are today. So please take a screenshot of this if you haven't uh, get her book. It's available on audiobook as well as you know you can get it quickly from Amazon. It's very much worth the read. And if you have students, I urge you to um, allow them to also read it as well. So we have to. From, uh, this is oh, Kevin yes. jumping in. Uh, I've got a question here that I think uh, kind of might be in the wheelhouse as you've been reflecting a lot on trust during this presentation. So I'm just going to read this aloud and see if uh, you want to provide comment now or we should awesome. save for the Q&A. Uh, the question states, I worry about focusing on mistrust of populations who have been discriminated against can feel like a racialized gaslighting. Mm. Is trust the problem or trustworthiness of public health hospitals and governments given the damning history you've narrated this morning? Thank you for that question. That is a great question and it actually ties into this slide. So this is perfect timing. Um, I think it's an and, I don't think it's an or. I think that what we haven't done as an institution is make ourselves trustworthy. Uh, and without doing that, we have not started to create a bridge that creates trust within the populations that we're trying to serve. So it's it's an and. It's not just saying that a population is distrustful and therefore we're trustworthy, so we just need to figure out how they can now trust us. What we have to accept is what I have in this slide is that we're still living in a significant culture of inequity and medicine hasn't done a good job yet of reconciling with its past to make itself trustworthy enough to even begin conversations about trust with, with populations that are distrustful. So we need to do that work um, and that's some of the stuff that we're going to talk about as I go through of like, what does that work look like? Um, so we're still living in this culture of inequity and medicine hasn't reconciled with its racist past. We're still doing things like training clinicians to focus on the normalization of white bodies and black and brown bodies are seen as other or different. I can't tell you uh, how many times I've had people in my current institution say to me things like, oh, you know, well, uh, we told the patient's family to look for redness. And I say things like, well, they're dark skinned. Redness is that something that happens to them. So we you give them the opportunity to understand what to look for for their skin. Little things that are just considered normalized in our speech that we don't pay attention to that are truly a normalization of white bodies, but otherizing black and brown bodies, we, we just haven't done. We've done a lot of data highlighting the expansive gaps um, in the outcomes of major diseases, but we haven't done anything to stop collecting data and actually start getting into process improvement at the same level as we do with data collection. Every month or so, I see another journal that comes out with more evidence on disparities and gaps. And I've always, I've asked some colleagues, I'm like, at what point are we going to say that we know that there's a, there's disparities and gaps and stop looking for disparities and gaps and actually just start highlighting people who are trying to close those disparities and gaps. We haven't done a good job of pushing that element as well. There is an emergent need to increase racially diverse medical practitioners. I talked earlier about how the sense of trust that comes with this racial concordance is one of the biggest impacts on um, outcomes of patients, and it is. It's a huge impact. There was a study that it's in my reference list that I have on there that um, showed that just by virtue of having the cardiologist be a black cardiologist, the 
uh, improvement in the outcome of the black patients was up by 30% because of things like increased compliance, um, increased with medication, adherence and testing and all these other things because there was a sense that that person truly cares for me because they are like me. And that again has come out of this, this long history of, of not having a trustworthy system. And then bias and care delivery must be highlighted, exposed and not tolerated. Um, again, a sense that everybody has been talking about this because you can just Google it and see all the data that's come out. Clinicians have bias and we don't do a good job of addressing what that actually means. We highlight that there's bias, we highlight that it has impact on, on patient outcomes, but we're not really doing a lot of stuff other than telling people to take the implicit bias test, but that's not really getting at change. Um, and so we really need to look at our culture of inequity critically, and we won't be able to make progress until we do that. And the best example that we've got going on is this compounding twin pandemics of what um, was affectionately termed the COVID of 1619 by a Baptist preacher in um, Atlanta, plus the current pandemic of COVID-19. And we know what these case numbers looks like uh, at the time of uh, that this slide was um, put up. This was March of, of uh, this uh, graph was from March 2021. We know these numbers have changed. It is really clear that Black people, especially, uh, have uh, fared worse during the pandemic, and we know the reasons why. We know that it's poor living conditions and congregate spacing um, issues. This again ties back to how um, freed persons were uh, left to kind of figure it out on their own in a society that was set up in a way that didn't promote and address that inequity. We know that it's a possibility, it's impossible for many of these people to work in different jobs that take them away or the ability to be safe. So they are in frontline jobs that uh, require them to come in contact with people to get some, that allows them to get sicker um, more frequent than anyone else. And we also know that there is a distrust in the hospital system that runs very deep. So coming to the hospitals early, trying to assume that they will get the same level of care that a white counterpart will when they don't believe that that's true, and we have data that shows it's not true, keeps people home, which gets them sicker before they arrive. And then the multitude of comorbidities that are associated with uh, just the systemic racism within our country hit black uh, and brown uh, communities even harder on top of that. So we, we are really clear even just in today's time that we haven't done a good job of addressing the previous pandemic of racism that started in 1619 and it has impacted significantly the current pandemic that we're living in. And as we know with the story of Dr. Susan Moore that it isn't a social economic issue because social economics did not, did not save her. Uh, for those of you who may not remember Dr. Moore, tragically died from COVID. She videotaped herself in her own hospital saying that her death will be due to racism because they were, her care was being impacted because of the burden of blackness. Her being black caused questions and caused changes in the practice of how they treated her that actually did lead to her death. And so she unfortunately is a more recent poster child for how the burden of blackness is terminal and is seen as a terminal condition in many ways. And so I think that we need to take her story very seriously because she wasn't the poor 
uh, black woman who was living in government assistance in a congregate living facility with a low paying job. She was a highly trained, really capable physician who was very clear on what was happening to her, but her white colleagues at the time were not listening and did not pay to attention to it. Uh, that led to her, her dying. So how do we move forward? And I think that this is really important to think through because this is all dark and heavy and we have to really try and figure out a way forward. One of the things that I don't like to do when having conversations about race and racism is to just assume that we just kind of throw out all these really dark, heavy things and then just walk away. That's not helpful because we all have the ability to move forward. And I believe that the best way to move forward is to start with empathy. And empathy is defined um, by Merriam-Webster as the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another of either the past or present without having those feelings, thoughts, and experiences fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner. That is one of the most intense definitions that I've ever had to read about one word. There's a lot in there that I think we should unpack a little bit more. And so if we break it down, it's truly an understanding of that we have to focus on. So what about the Black experience, the experience do we understand? An awareness of the current situation and past situation. Are we sensitive to the past history of where we were and where we are now? And is it possible to create some vicarious experiencing? Because we're all human. So there's an ability to see oneself in another person. We have to just kind of take the time to make that happen. And it's, all of these things must be done among our feelings, thoughts, and experiences. There are new virtual reality. Um, uh, I don't want to call them games, but experiences that I, I so American College of Chess Physician was going to have one of these experiences at their last Congress before uh, COVID happened. So since we haven't been able to meet in person, we would not be able to do this. But the idea was to do to use these virtual reality uh, goggles that allow clinicians to spend the day in the life of. So you put the goggles on and then you you go through the experience of being a patient going into a clinic or, or to a doctor's office and you you find out what you are. Are you a man or a woman? Are you black, Asian, Hispanic? Whichever you are is going to be opposite to what you are in real life. And then you experience through the virtual reality, reality, reality lens, sorry, what that patient would experience in that encounter with the clinician. And studies have shown that it's only through that kind of level of deep emotional empathy and impact that we actually have a change in behavior. It's not through doing implicit bias tests. It's not through listening to lectures. It's really through the full experience that makes you internalize what it meant to be that person that caused this change. So we have to really focus on how to build and promote empathy in our clinicians because the, the data are clear. Research has shown that empathy, if, when we practice empathetic medicine, it results in increased patients reporting of their symptoms and concerns. There's that trust building opportunity. It improves patient participation in their care, again, building trust, and it enhances patient compliance and satisfaction. And as you can See, none of these things require you to be racially concordant with the patient, right? So racial concordance is a huge factor, but also just being empathetic has the same similar outcomes. So this is something that doesn't require 
a huge influx of African-American clinicians just to make sure that African-Americans are taken care of. That's not how we can we do things. We shouldn't do things. Yes, there needs to be a build out of African-Americans in medicine because there are other reasons why African-Americans don't succeed in becoming clinicians that are part of systemic racism issues, but not only because they need to take care of black patients. They need to be able to take care of patients and we all need to be able to do it with empathy. So this is the work. This is the hard work that has to be done because right now trust has not been established. We haven't even made ourselves trustworthy. So I really appreciate that comment from earlier. Racism is still ingrained in the foundation of all of our practices and our systems and all the functions that we have yet to, to tease out. So we have to really focus on addressing those things. Bias is still in decision making. It still rules our decision making. I tell the residents all the time that it is okay to have that biased or racist thought. It's okay for it to pop in your mind. It is not okay for it to be the last thought. Like your the duty and the work is to recognize when that thought comes in, to not have that thought be the final thought and come up with an alternative to that. We know we all have biases, so we have to just own them and try and make better decisions as a result of acknowledging those biases and moving forward. And we have to create a strong change in the culture of white supremacy. And right now, that change in white, the culture of white supremacy is not really a priority. Uh, and until this, this work is done, it's gonna be really difficult promoting empathy in medicine in order to try and build those trusting relationships to truly impact the disparity. So this is a work that I urge you all to, to start doing. It's figuring out ways that within your sphere of influence to address these elements and to start practicing empathetic medicine, to do your own personal work on figuring out where your gaps are in knowledge, what don't you understand about how racism impacts your particular sphere of medicine? Um, it, the nephrologists are doing a really good job of highlighting how racism has impacted the um, uh, EGFR when we uh, when we offer dialysis to patients uh, who are black versus patients who are white. They're doing a really good job of teasing out how racism has shifted and changed how they practice medicine that has been couched under the heading of a biological difference, but we know that there's no biological difference, um, but, it's, but it's only really because of the systemic racism within the system. So that kind of work needs to be done. And when we do it, we know better. Uh, I love ending my talks with this slide from uh, Maya Angelou, my favorite quote from her, do the best you can until you know better, then when you know better, do better. Because I feel like that's where we are in this space in this journey, we're trying to create a system that's never existed. And I think that that's always something that we forget, that there, there was never a time when we can point in our history where we got this right. So we're creating something new. So every step that we take in learning something new means that we're now able to do better. And so now you all have listened to this talk for the last 45 minutes. You have a little bit more knowledge on how to do better. So the expectation is that now that you know better, that you'll do better. My references. And thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, thank you, Dr. Schiederstrom. Really appreciate uh, your presentation this morning. And we do have some questions that uh, I think folks are, are wanting to engage further. So that that's excellent. I'm going to read from uh, one question that's come in um, that uh, may be in the space of uh, where we go from here. And it reads, I couldn't believe more in the work that you and your colleagues are doing in DEI. But the gap between me and my family here is continental. 
where can I start more productively than dueling social media posts? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I think that it's one of those situations where we have to just kind of lead by example. When we have our own critical lens on how we look at the world that we can influence, it is, it's hard to assume that we have to, to influence the big picture. We can just start by small influences. Look at the people who you are close friends with, who comes to your house, who do your kids play with, um, who are your uh, familiar connections that you chose, right? Like <laughs> everybody has family that we chose versus family that we were born into. Who are the people that you chose? In those spheres, if there's any differences that are there, did you even notice them? If there are no differences, why is that? And you can start just kind of within that realm of your, you know, your sphere of influence to figure out, you know, I don't have anybody around me that doesn't look differently than me or is not a different sexual orientation or gender or from a, a country that doesn't speak English or, or, or an immigrant or whatever the element is that brings in that diversity into your sphere. If that's missing, then that's the kind of work you can do. Instead of trying to worry about how to fix other people, worry more about how you can influence yourself and the people immediately around you. And that ripple effect has extreme power. When you demonstrate that not only is this not hard to do, but this is actually really fun because that just made like my Friday night movie night even better because now I'm like learning about, you know, these amazing French films that have like crazy subtitles, but a, the, an awesome story. And I never would have thought about it. it was only my French friend that made it happen. That kind of experience shines. And when it shines, other people want to do that. And they want to be around you to do that. And your family members cross continents. I'm half Nigerian, so I understand the differences in, in continental um, beliefs. They see that. There will be some that still just say, you know what, I don't want to be part of that, and that's their choice. But there will be others that will ask questions, and it's in those co meaningful conversations that you can truly impact because they're ready to listen and they're ready to understand. Uh, and now you have the ability to truly say, you know, I didn't know how to do this the right way, but I just started, and this is how it came out. Yeah, I love yeah. those reflections. Thank you very much. I'm going to shift gears and uh, a question we have uh, states, I want to be an ally for health equity, but I'm really confused by a concept I keep hearing about called caste. Can you help me understand how this relates to racism, structural inequalities, etc.? I didn't hear what that concept was called. Caste. Cast. Oh, a head nod to Isabel. Wil Isabel Wilkinson's cast. Yes, uh, another great book to read. Um, if if you haven't read Isabel Wilkinson's book uh, called Cast, I highly recommend it. And um, the the cast concept is really it's really powerful. What she does is she looks at how the caste system was structured in India which we're all familiar with is the various um, caste systems. It's probably the most famous and the oldest caste system in the, in the world. Uh, and then looked at the use of similar concepts with the German um, insurrection over the Jewish population. And then also with, in America with white people over black people. And what she outlines is the similarities and who are considered untouchable or lower class across these three very different cultural groups is it's not just the same, 
but it's it's scarily impactful. There are many examples that she shows on how uh, the the Nazis in Germany actually con like contracted and had conversations with white people in America to learn how to better enslave the Jews, right? So there's like this interaction between these groups that has not really been something that mainstream has talked about to help with continuation uh, with the continual uh, disenfranchisement and enslavement and just degradation of groups of people. And how a lot of that also stems from how in India they did the same thing with people who are considered untouchables. So the caste concept is really something that she is trying to push that we switch our conversation to not just say that black people were seen as either subhuman or any of those other things she is saying that as of today black people are still considered in the american caste system lower caste and as a result of it still being a, this this caste phenomenon people of the dominant caste white people are still doing and being able to create an uh anything from systemic changes, institutional changes, policies, laws, all of that, to directly disenfranchise the lower caste, which is Black people. It's a very, very deep, really rich book um, that has examples that I had actually never heard of in my entire history of, of doing this work, that she she traveled to India, she talked to many places, to people in Germany, and got a lot of evidence to support this continuation of a caste system within the United States that uh, has been around since the since the beginning and formulation of the country. So um, caste is is not sort of outside the DEI space. It's fully in the DEI space in that it is just another way of describing the inequities and the disparities between the different populations. I'm glad we had this on record because that seems like a bit of a cliff notes of sorts for uh, such a great book. And uh, yeah, her bodily um, metaphor of uh, race being the skin and caste being the bones of a racialized body, po body politic is something right. I have thought a lot about. I, I think we have somebody here that wants to do a little bit of ethics. And it's the question says, uh, ethics seems to be something about balancing principles. Can you walk me through how health equity can clash with other key principles and how to reconcile them? Sure. So uh, I have I have uh, made myself uh, this little this little box out of the ethics bucket of being a, an equity and ethics person. Um, and um, I think that when we when we look at the principles, none of them actually are against health equity what we actually what we need to do is figure out the connection of how they work together and a great example end of life care everybody knows sort of the classic ethics example of end of life care um with and this and this happens across the country your black families have a harder time ag agreeing to transitioning to hospice um but uh they do it later sometimes they don't do it at all and many people ascribe that to uh, just a distrust in the system well yes there is distrust there but there's also the reality that we know that black patients don't get pain medicine um as they're supposed to, to have their pain man managed. Black people don't get offered therapeutic interventions at the same level as white patients do. So there's so there's this inequity element that maybe have led to where this patient is now. And then the ethics conversation about withdrawal of care gets sidetracked because we're focusing on the fact that, oh, this is just another black family that's not gonna go down that path, but we miss the opportunity to address 
the disparity that may have led to where this family is and then have a conversation about what's ethically appropriate for them. And what I have found in my practice of clinical ethics and equity is that when you combine the two, it makes a more makes more and more powerful um, supporting of principles of autonomy and beneficence and all those other things by saying to families, I recognize that this may have been a really difficult situation to get into. Were there times in your stay or in your loved one's stay that you felt that your race was impacted? It was the impact for the care. And when you open that question of the floodgates come up, they're like, yes, there was this that happened. And I believe they only did this because it was black. They didn't offer that when I Googled it, right? There was a whole list that comes out when you say, were there times where you believed your race impacted the care? And then when that opens, then you can have these conversations that apologize, that address and acknowledge, that create that trusting relationship that we know is missing because there is a fear that if we acknowledge these things, there may be some legal recourse or whatever it is. So we, we miss that opportunity to truly get at that human level of connection. And when that happens, then you have a better opportunity to talk about things like, well, we promise we will take care of them as they die. And this is how we can do that and give them positive experiences that show that you not only see their pain and their struggle and their internal fight that is the health equity element of it by feeling that there was racism involved in the care of their loved one, but also the ability to show that acknowledging that now means that we can move forward in a matter of empathy and truly take care of the loved one in this inevitability of dying, right? People don't believe that death is never going to happen. They know that. The fight often is because that they feel like somebody is, is doing this to their loved one ahead of when it's supposed to be done. And that that tension is mostly in this protective sphere because they truly engage in this feeling that they need to protect their loved one from us, the institution. And so when we acknowledge that that fear doesn't need to happen in this case because we're owning that there may have been some steps that we missed on our path and we say we're sorry for that, that breaks down those walls and then they start to feel more comfortable with knowing that we're gonna care for them. And that's where the empathy comes in. It's just the ability to sit in that discomfort and say, that was really crappy. I'm really sorry that that happened. And if it was something that needs to be taken up to a different level, do that as well. Um, uh, but acknowledging and giving people the opportunity to, to sort of exhale that pent up anger around my race or my loved one's race is the reason why I feel X, Y, and Z or I need to feel more protective is one of those great ways to, to connect ethics and, and equity work. Wow, wonderful response. I, I myself have a lot to think about there. Really great reflections, Neka. Uh, I, I do want to pivot to uh, this example that is, is sort of in the, the uh, vein of uh, death and dying and end of life um, as a commentator supplies that here in Oregon, as we may be leveling off from a surge in coronavirus patients, our local clinical ethics community has recommended health systems develop triage plans that include an equity consideration, which adjusts a prognostic score according to the area deprivation index. Parenthetically, attempts to account for how baseline health factors are not neutral and outcomes are poorer for residents of vulnerable neighborhoods. Some believe very strongly that this is not fair, potentially denying an ICU bed on the basis of zip code. Is this the right approach? Uh, so uh, <laughs> Doug White and I have had some really good conversations about this because uh, it was it's it's mostly through Doug's work at Pittsburgh um, with the area of deprivation index as a, sort of a proxy for race that that has that has uh, come about with um, these triage decision making 
my argument, uh, which Doug and I disagree on, is is that it the area of deprivation index is just one element that should be discussed in regards to the triage decisions. I firmly believe that race needs to be included as its own separate element, and that's where really people get really uncomfortable <laughs> in that space. And mostly because the reality is that the, especially historically traumatized and marginalized populations in this country, right, there's only really two populations that fit that bucket. It's indigenous populations and African-Americans or Black Americans. Those are the only two populations that have been historically marginalized and traumatized. That history means that there is huge systems that are running against these people before they walk into the door, right? Like there's just massive amounts of systemic issues. So when they walk in the door to assume that they are evaluated at the same level as a, a white man from the suburbs is just a false assumption because there, there are different elements that affected that white man's journey than they are to the black patient um, or, or the, the indigenous person. So because we know that, if we don't account for that, then we're not actually truly being equitable in our evaluation of triage decisions. What we're doing is we're trying to work on equality and equality doesn't work until we're equitable, right? So, and I think that that's where people feel the unfairness. They say that, oh, well then that means that some other person won't get it because this other person did. Well, the reality is that that's literally been the history and the world that indigenous populations and black populations have lived in in this country, right? Like they have historically and continue to not get while others get. And so if we're really trying to be honest about how to be equitable in triage decision makers, then we're going to have to account for that. And accounting for that means that we prioritize as a result of that, because that's what equity means, right? You give what is necessary at that point in order to bring that population up to the same level as the dominant population. So you prioritize or you give extra points or whatever the system is in order to try and level the playing field. And it's at that point that you make the evaluation. Uh, and what Doug has tried to do with the area of deprivation index is to say that if we use zip code, then we somehow protect from the worry that a um, constitutional law person will say that we're violating the 14th Amendment by by using race as an indicator. Um, but my argument back is that the constitutional law person who wants to take on that case will have several other constitutional lawyers. There's a whole group of black constitutional lawyers who are itching to have the conversation on how using the 14th Amendment to actually bar race from being used to improve the race of the like improve the systems of a people of a particular race is actually going against the spirit of what the 14th amendment was set up to do so if that fight needs to happen in the supreme court then then i would happily be the one that starts that fight because i think that that's where we're falling short in the equity work is that we're assuming we can't do what needs to be done because of race but that's the only way we're going to get out of this Wow, what an answer. And uh, we are at time. I'll, I'll just uh, put one last question out there to see if as time expires and folks click away, if you have a final thought, Dr. Cedarstrom, one of our social workers from a primary care clinic uh, asks, on a primary care clinic level, what one thing would you hope staff and providers do differently to support underrepresented racial minorities? Uh, on the primary clinic level, I think the best thing that you could do is just take a second and ask our patients, what do you need from us to help you be successful in your care? 
And I think that we don't really do that as often as we should. Uh, and that's truly the question. Like, what do you need from us? How can we help you? How can we build a relationship with you to be successful in your care? And acknowledging that sometimes the barriers are due to race. And so we want to own that and upfront it. And if they're feeling like there are barriers to their care as a result of their race, be, figure out a way to collect those and address those. Well, on behalf of the Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics and the Medical Grand Rounds team at Providence St. Vincent and here in Providence, Oregon, really want to thank you, Dr. Cedarstrom, for a wonderful hour. And uh, we'll stay tuned for the rest of the presentations, including this afternoon at noon. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Bye. Bye, -bye.